Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode 21 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. So I'm very excited to have the founder and former CEO of a company just featured in the August 2017 edition of Inc. Magazine. Daniel Fong is the creator of Million Dollar Baby Company. MDB has made six appearances on the annual Inc. 5000 list of America's fastest growing private companies. Enjoy this one. We're not a perfect company. I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a perfect owner. I'm not a perfect boss. But we are continuously trying to improve. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. So this is an exciting interview for me, because I got to see how a legacy leader invests in and treats their people well. When I was a speaker for a Vistage Inside Group at Daniel Fong's company, Million Dollar Baby Company. Okay, I just want to set the stage first for why I think this is a great opportunity for my audience to hear ideas on how to be a people-focused leader. Daniel, prior to starting Million Dollar Baby, you were a venture capitalist. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about your life journey up to that point where you started Million Dollar Baby Company in 1990? Where did you grow up? Were you always interested in business? Welcome to the show. I was born in Hong Kong. And then uh, went to boarding school in Worcester, Massachusetts for two years before entering Harvard University in 1976. After that, I returned to Hong Kong to join my father's textile business for four years. Uh, And then I started the venture capital operation for Lian Fong Trading Company. At the current moment, I believe the largest trading company in the world at about $22 billion dollars. So I worked from there from 1983 to 1989. I started the venture capital operation and got really interested in operating companies rather than investing in the company. So I recruited a replacement for my role at Lian Fong, and I asked the company to transfer me back to Hong Kong to run some trading operations. So... um, that got me interested in really running things, managing people, and for four years we were the the significant among all the divi- the uh, various divisions that I was doing. One of them was the uh, as a toy wholesaling operation in Asia, and I grew that to be the number one distributor of the major brands uh, for the United States at that time. It's like um uh. The Transformers that's being revitalized right now into TVs and stuff, that was a big seller for us. Um, G.I. Joe's and My Little Pony is another movie that's being made. So all those toys were, were distributed by Lee and Fong in, 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 uh, in Asia. Uh, it eventually, that, that company was sold to Hasbro because they, they loved the distribution and they, they, they bought the company. So uh, 1989... Uh, because of what they say, the incidents in, uh, in Beijing Tiananmen Square on June 4th, uh, I was 31 years old with two young children, so I decided that maybe uh, I need to reconsider um, uh, a future in Hong Kong. So I immigrated to Los Angeles. 
1990, uh, at the end of 1989. So whether I was very interested in business on, uh, in terms of starting a business, that actually is not true, uh, even though um, my father has always encouraged me to do that. And for me, I've always had this really strange desire to just to be the best, to just to do everything very good. And my hypothesis was that the big companies in the United States are all run by professional managers. They're not owners. And so as long as you're good, I said, you can make a good living and you don't really necessarily have to run the business. So that is sort of um, sort of the strange way of why I was not looking for a business. But um, at 1990, after working for my father, after working for a trading company, a big trading company, that's when I was thinking about what to do next is that, hey, maybe I can do a little business on my own just to see what that is like. So it's not like my childhood dream, but I just thought it was, for me, it was an experience. So I, I was looking, using my venture capital grant, I was using, I was using the skills to try, to try to buy a company rather than start a company. And so that's, and I, you know, that's a different story of how um, I got the million-dollar baby out of all the other options, and, and, and the rest is just history. So go back to when you were a venture capitalist for a second. So here you are, you're running companies. How long did you run different companies, and how many companies did you get to run? No, um, and when I was a venture capitalist, I did not get to run companies, and that's why I asked to move. Uh, I moved back to an operating position with Lian Fong. So they were venture wait, wait, capitalists. Let me... You invest and you sit on the board. Your board member. You meet with them every quarterly or whatever to get you know, and then you advise the CEOs or the leadership team to do whatever thing. If they don't listen, you know, you, I get frustrated. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what I'm talking about. So then you started running companies that they were investing in. I was not running them. I was, in, I was an investor. As a venture capitalist, I was an investor. I was not an operator. No, no, no. I understand that part. But I guess once you asked to be switched. I switched to, to back to Lian from the headquarters. They are trading companies. So they have divisions that work with customers on different products. They're big in textiles. They're big in electronics, plastics. So I was one of the divisions that I was running was the toy wholesale division in Asia. Okay, and you said you brought them to number one. So how did you do that? What, what, what did you do differently that allowed you to bring that product to be number one? Um, well, uh, interesting. Um, it was a strategic decision that I felt that um, instead of just distributing out of Hong Kong, I saw that, that if I am one of those, uh, like Hasbro, the principals that we're distributing, uh, like Mattel, that we're distributing their products, they would, they would value a network of distributors. So they're working with a lot of other distributors, and I was proposing that we can, or I try, I try to um, you know, open up more offices so that I can go there and say, you can do one-stop shop with us, and I can service you through the whole region. Yeah, nice. So you just changed the way they were doing business before. Right. And they that is that. actually the similar story what I did with uh, Million Dollar Baby when I first started out also. Okay. And so, because I want to stay on this venture capitalist right. for a second. So how did you evaluate companies that you wanted to invest in when you were a venture capitalist? What, what were you looking for? I was looking mainly for the type of business first, whether there's potential. And the other thing is whether it's really uh, well, it's a niche, whether it's a niche player. So you wanted a unique company that had a lot of upside. Right. And, uh, and what, what about the, the leadership team? I mean, did that matter? Or were you bringing in your own leadership teams? Or were you looking for the best leaders within those organizations? Yes. Um, uh, all 
almost all of the investments are into family business. Okay. And then what the, the special niche for the Li and Feng Venture Capital that's different from everybody else, which they still continue to pursue, is that we invest in our customers. So the logic or the origin of that thought was that Li and Feng Trading is a trading company where they work with buyers or major companies in Asia, uh, in the United States, uh, that wants to buy material food factories in Asia. So instead of opening up their offices, you know, there's all kinds of coordination and detail follow-up work. They work through a trading company, an agent, that does all the follow-up uh, to make sure that quality is okay, the orders are on time. So the typically is that there's a lot of small, medium size that start with Lee and Fung, and when they get to really, really huge company, then they start their own company. They say, okay, we don't need Lee and Fung anymore. So uh, we can do that. We, can, we just do our own thing. We have better control. Probably, you know, the theory is that they're, they can do it at better pricing. So the, traditionally, Lee and Fung see all these great companies that they help um, make them successful, and then they leave. So wh- when I was actually... <laughs> looking for a job, they were just thinking about, hey, can we start investing in these companies? You know, they, they know that these small, medium-sized will need money to grow, and if we invest in the, in the early stages, and then maybe by the time they, 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 they're big, they, they either continue to, to work with us, or if they go somewhere else, if they got sold, that we actually get some capital gain on, the, on, the, on that end also, than just the trading commission. And so clearly that worked out well for them and continues to do so, it sounds like. Right. They, 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 they are very, very successful in their acquisition strategy, and they're still doing that. Yeah, they are, they are one of the biggest private equity funds right now, I think. So then you get the entrepreneurial itch, and you go to start a business. First, why? I mean, you said you kind of didn't plan on it, but why, why did you start the company in 1990? As I explained, it was because I worked for my father already, so I worked for a family business, and I worked for someone which is a large business. So I was really more about trying to get different experiences in my life. Not particular entrepreneurship, but I thought at that juncture I was looking for something to do. I didn't think that I need to go and for if I go and just work for another company, it just is, to me it's a similar experience of working with Lee and Fong. So that's why I wanted something different, and I thought entrepreneurship, uh, doing my own thing, may be an interesting experience. So did you consider other businesses? I mean, what made you decide on the baby furniture business? Okay, um, that's a good segue to the story. Uh, no, I looked at a lot of business, and, and the basis of my business was my hobbies, things that I like to do. So I was looking at uh, uh, toy wholesale. I was looking at um, some, uh, some uh, gardening companies because I like plants and like flowers, and it's kind of strange, right? Uh, um, and and uh, etc. Uh, so more on my along my hobby. I mean, I actually even looking at the uh, tropical fish uh, breeding company at one time because I also like aquariums and things like that. So this this story about million dollar baby is it's I would say I mean at this point I would say that I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm not here to evangelize, but I think um, God has been faithful and really. A lot of give me a lot of grace in terms of blessing to me, and and so this company came from a divine appointment. I would have to say that, and I will tell you the story why I, I think that's the case, and I know that that's the case. Is that uh, I was going through my normal channels, talking to accountants, lawyers, um, network of other venture capitals, and looking at deals and stuff. And I at that point I don't really read a lot of Chinese newspaper in in Los Angeles. 
So one day, I think in a in a park bench or some kind of area, when somebody you know there's some leftover newspaper, and it was a classified ad section. And I I don't remember why I opened it, and 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 I I know that usually it's it's like at that time video stores, uh, fast food stores, restaurant stores, and things like that. It's nothing really, uh, and mostly retail, nothing exciting. But out of the blue, there's this wholesale company. It's a baby furniture wholesale, and that was strange to me. And so uh, I I went and visit um, them, and, and it's a very interesting story. It's an old couple in the 70s, and they moved from Texas to California uh, because they used to be in the motel or the real estate business, and, and I believe the real estate, there was a crash uh, in the United States, uh, and, and, the, and, and so they were not doing well, and they decided to move to California, and they are related to uh, a baby furniture manufacturing company in Taiwan. And the nephew said, why don't we ship you a container of baby furniture and maybe you can start selling it because they believe there's a big market in the United States for baby furniture. So they did that for about two years. And it was a very small company, but it has a very low overhead. So they were able to make a you know, decent living out, out of that, maybe about $150,000 a year out of a very small company. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, I identified the baby uh, business as sort of the toy business that I experienced in, in Hong Kong, and I called that a happy business. And I think about, I mean, again, I thought about it. I thought that's a, that's a very niche business, but very stable because there will always be babies being born in this world. Uh, it may not be at that time like the high-tech boom, but it will be very stable. And I thought that for for, for first business, for, for, for to start a business, that would be an interesting way to go. Um, so I talked to them, uh, and since it's about buying from Asia, I know, I know that. I visited their factories. They were receptive because of my reputation as an executive Lee and Fung, which they're familiar with. So uh, very, very simply, I bought the company. Um, a very simple transaction, and that's how I started. Now, the reason why I think it was a divine appointment was that that was 1990. And I think, uh, I, would, I believe it was uh, one year later in 1991. Out of the blue again, I, I'm not a subscriber of Chinese newspaper. I picked up another Chinese newspaper, the same one, the same uh, World Journal, and I looked at the classified section again. And <laughs> lo and behold, there's another baby furniture wholesale company for sale. And that was in Dallas, Texas. So the same story, um, it's a younger couple now. They just decide they want to move back to Taiwan. And so it's a similar type of company, um, regional, basically uh, uh, supplying the Texas area, while the company that I first bought supplied the California area. Similar product, they buy from the same factory. And I didn't realize it until I saw the ad, and then we connected, and so I bought the, the second company. So we expanded to Dallas the second year through two classified ads in a Chinese newspaper. Yeah, it, it does seem like divine intervention, does it? I mean, just the fact that you were able to do that and see the opportunity and, and then meet those families, and both were heading in a different direction and at a different point in their lives. So, And, and the way I understand it, you, you were a bit of a disruptor in this industry. Most of your competitors only allowed their retail vendors to buy product twice a year, and then the retail outlets had to hold the inventory. 
but you decided to do something different, a right. little different. And you took a risk opening a huge warehouse space, which is, by the way, a, a big burden financially, yeah. so that retailers could you know, get product from you anytime. Right. And you basically said to the retailer customers, use my warehouse as your warehouse. Right. Like, why did you do that? Well, because that's, uh, that's how I look at it, is that you have to have a story. When you, when you do any business, and you know, why are you different, and why should people buy from you? And I think the biggest mistake for me is to just sell on price, uh, right? I might, I, I, I'm selling you the same product, but I'm cheaper, so buy from me. I don't really believe, and I don't think that's, that's that much fun. So I want to always go in and, and do any business to try to create something different, a, a new story. So I studied the market. I'm new to this industry. So the market at that time in 1990 is dominated by domestic production, uh, the uh, domestic factories. Imports, are, they, they look down at it. These are called cheap imports, right, from Asia. Um, they're poor quality, and the only thing that the redeeming quality is that they're very cheap. So how do, how do you fight that war, right? So understanding the domestic manufacturers, they're so strong. They are manufactured, they're factories. So they're what they call, they call, they have cutting cycles. That means I'm making this crib, this style, this next week, or we have a schedule. So they are forcing the, the, the retailers to buy according to their manufacturing schedule. That means they're not, they don't care what you sell or something, but if they're not making it, they're not going to suddenly stop all the machines and then, you know, do another run just for, for your crib or one crib or two crib. They make, say, a few hundred cribs, and then they announce it to the retailers. You do it that way. So that way, there's not much flexibility, right? The retailers have to basically forecast what they can sell, and they have to buy uh, the inventory, put that in the warehouse, and, and, and wait for the customer to come in so that they can, they can, they can sell it to them. So uh, for me at that time, I thought, hey, that's an interesting opportunity because I, ha- I have to import the stuff anyway. Right, I have to have a warehouse to in, uh, because I can't just say, okay, give me your order. I call up Taiwan and then somehow <laughs> I can't air freight it in. And then somehow every day, every week, there's a shipment coming in. It takes 30 days for the ship to arrive anyway. So my business model is warehousing and distribution. So then I said, okay, if, if that is the, the difference between the, the domestic manufacturer and I have the warehouses ready, why don't I actually expand my distribution throughout the United States, get my warehouses close to my customers, even though I can ship across country to New York, it will take three or four days. So how many warehouses did you end up having? At one time, I had four. And what, where were the regions? I'm just curious. Los Angeles, Dallas, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, and New Jersey. So what, what, what were the challenges of doing things differently? I mean, so, you know, you're kind of setting the standard here, thinking outside the box. What were the challenges that came your way at that time? Uh, the challenge, like you, uh, you described, is the complexity. Because I have to now manage more warehouses. I have to manage more inventory. So financially, that's, that's a little bit more taxing. Uh, and then also by having that many offices, management is a challenge. Managing people to run the operations correctly. It's a, it's a challenge. And so, you know, you're, you're a growing company. You're, you're being innovative. How did you find those good people? I mean, because you're now in four different regions across the country. You've got, you're dealing with, uh, you know, shipping in product from overseas. Yes. How did you find those good people in, in all the different areas? That, well, that's why I have to interject again. I'm not, I'm not really evangelizing here, but I really think that it's God's, God's blessing. Um, divine appointments. Even now, I mean, we have an incredible team. I, I just acknowledge it now. 
we have a pretty good, sophisticated um, recruitment system. We do it 365 days a year. Uh, we're constantly recruiting because the right people, you know, when you need them, they're just not, you know, you just can't go out and hire them because the great people always is in uh, full employment already. So, so even we put ads out, we go out and do recruitment, uh, uh, recruitment functions and stuff like that, right? Uh, but in the end, you really can't control who comes your way. I mean, someone showed up one day, and why would he not? Someone, the other person not showed up, and all that stuff. And and I just all I can say is that it, it firstly is divine appointments a blessing. The second thing we got to do what we got to do is that I mean, you're vintage speakers. There's enough speakers. I mean, there's enough books out there of how you can really uh, interview people and and get the people to come. But uh, there is a little twist to that is that um, we actually don't put a lot of effort now in terms of the initial recruiting. And um, there's a lot of folks that said how they go through like 10 rounds of interviews or six rounds, you know, six months of interview and all that stuff. I actually, we actually don't believe that that is actually effective. We put the emphasis on the first month of onboarding um, because there's so many techniques right now that people can interview well, people know whatever. And then... Um, and then I think mathematically, it's the best we can do is actually 50%. Uh, that means you either high right or you high wrong, mathematically. Uh, of course, if you don't do it correctly, then you can have 90% of people coming in being wrong. So mathematically, it's 50-50%. But I, what I want to do is that we, we have a very rigorous onboarding program for the first month. There's a, so talk to me about that onboarding program because that's, okay, now I'm fascinated. All kinds of, um, every week there's, there's, there's the assessment. And that person needs to go through all kinds of different um, departments and trainings. And, and that's also a, a, a continuous changing anyway, right? So that maybe we can talk about that, about the continuous changing or continuous improvement. That means whatever I talk to you, whatever I know, is probably outdated already. But the essence is that we continue to improve. But the, pro- the issue is that we want to flush out as much as possible the real person through that first month. There's stories about how person a uh, person interviewed great, and then he came to work. She came to work, dressed you know proper, appropriately, really nice for about five days. The first week, then the second week, everything changes. It's like a whole different person start coming to her. and maybe because she felt comfortable that now she's in or whatever. It just per- it turns out that then it turns out that that was not the right person for us. So we have good track record right now that uh, we can flush out anyone. I mean, you can be a really, really good scam artist, but I think within one month, with 100 people you know, basically <laughs> looking and evaluating you, uh, I think chances are we, we, we get the really right good people. Um, the, the, the philosophy behind that is that I hate to lose people after one year, you know, and even more. And I said every time people that have worked for the company for about a year or so or more, there's so much emotional investment from everyone, from everyone the comp- employed, uh, com- from the company. And for that person to leave, it's a really the waste of time for them and for ourselves. So let me ask you, that, do, that, do you... That should, we should not do that. We should, we, people that should not, that does not fit our uh, company, should, we should not really drag that, that process on for so long. So then do you end up terminating during the, do you end up terminating during that onboarding month? I mean, yes, is that when yes, most yes. of the termination, and do you make that clear to them up front so that they kind of know that, hey, this first month you're going to be evaluated or do they, are they told about that process? Uh, 
I hope so. Uh, again, I mean, I don't. I, I hope so uh, because that I have another philosophy, which is not only that for the onboarding, and I think uh, you know eventually there are turnovers in the company, right? You can't because people change, our company change, and it's a it's a constant matching process. And especially when we have to let people go, I always caution the team that it should never be a surprise. It should never be a surprise. It should never be a surprise of an employee to know where they stand in the company. So I, I know that, that, that we talked about that on, uh, every quarter because we have this quarterly performance review meeting, and, and they're constantly improving that process. Uh, there's all these 360s review that's happening right now that is not just a top-down review, but you always, uh, you always review the, the person that you're reporting to. Uh, so that so that they can improve too, they have information. So Daniel, you talked about you know that's that's the culture that you're creating. So right. how would you describe your company culture? Like what what did you do to create it, to cultivate it, protect it? Was it deliberate? Yes, it it needs to be deliberate. I think everything we do in life needs to be deliberate. And I think deliberate meaning that you think through what it is, you you value it's everything. I mean, you 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 check it according to your value. Uh, system, uh, what what's important or not, and then you devise a plan that you execute on. So I, I, I strongly recommend deliberateness in terms of everything that we do. So in terms of the philosophy, I can articulate again. I mean, I'm not trying to apologize. I want to warn um, the, uh, this listener that, that it is a faith-based um, type of philosophy. Is that um, when in the Bible, when someone asked Jesus Christ, what's the biggest laws? And uh, according to them, the Old Testament is all about laws, right? The Ten Commandments, all, all that stuff. So Jesus Christ said, uh, love God with all your heart, your soul, your might, and your, and your, and your strength is, uh, is the number one law. The second law is love God, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. So that is the fundamental philosophy behind uh, Million Dollar Baby. So in terms of uh, the uh, the... We were on the subject of uh, ex, um, uh, culture. culture, and um, the, ex, uh, the continuous improvement is, to, is based on the desire to be excellent. So my way of expressing my love for God is not, you know, keep saying I love you or going to church, praying or singing hymns or hugging people as I love you. I, I felt that excellence is a nice way to express my love for God. That means in everything that I do, in every encounter that I have with people, I, I want people to say, huh, that's an interesting way of doing things that is that's not common, and why is that? Oh, wow, Daniel is, is doing this because this is his expression of, 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 of loving God. So being excellent, it's a, it's a relative term for me. Uh, we talked about that that is very different from being perfect. Uh, we are not perfectionists. We, that's not the culture in our company, and we actually loudly tell everyone, and we repeat it all the time, that we are not perfect. We're not a perfect company. We're not a perfect, I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a perfect owner. I'm not a perfect boss. Uh, but we are continuously trying to improve. The continuous improvement is, is, is very important as part of the expression of the excellent part. Of you know what I love about what you said there is the love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, you know, just looking out for the employees. And I talk about this all the time in my speeches, when they feel that, you know, when people around you feel cared for, when they feel loved, when they feel like you have their best interests in mind, what do they want to give you? Everything. Not because they have to, because they want to. And there's a difference. Yes, you talk about that. And I completely subscribe to what you're right. You got to win people's heart. You got to win people's heart. So then... The way that we win people, uh, our employees' heart is that we need to be truthful. 
So, so in our quarterly meetings, I would start, you know, there's a week-long week meeting, which is very interesting. And I mean, we what we find out is not many companies, no company actually does that. They may do a one-day or a two-day quarterly something. We had a whole week. And then Friday is a group meeting where the company stops for the whole day and everybody gets together and listens to the senior team present what happened and what we're going to do for the field uh, for the next quarter. And I always kicked off, and I would always say with, uh, start with a prayer as a Thanksgiving. And I truly said that I'm not trying to force any religion. There's no crosses in our, our offices. There's no Bible laying everywhere. But it's very clear because I have been very honest about my faith, and, and everybody knows that this is a, you know, a Christian a sort of a theology-based type of company. And I would say a prayer, and I said, it's not an insult to anyone. It's just who I am. I give thanks for, 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 for all of you being here. And I think truthfulness, when you're, I, mean, I think you talk about that, being authentic, being really truthful to yourself, and not insulting and caring. And from that, of course, right, I've talked about love thy neighbor, is that, is that our excellence is not self-serving. And that's why I love Jesus Christ's answer, because you can say that I just love God and I can be excellent, but that can be a self-serving excellence, that I can say that I'm good, I'm great, I'm actually. But when your excellence is all about serving and loving other people, that means I, my excellence is about treating my employees, how I treat my employees, how I treat my factories, how I treat my customers, how I treat all the consumers that we contact with, and how, you know, like the visage speakers that come to our space. And I think you, I hope you you truly felt the warmth, that's just from our company, me, but from the whole company. No, I, I, of course I felt it. And that's why, that's why I wanted you on the show, because I was just fascinated by not only the fact, and we're going to get to this in a minute, that you have so many family members involved with the company, right. but just the overall energy and the feeling that came out of that company that day. And, and I want to go back to this Friday meeting where you say you get everybody together and you get the leadership team to talk about the vision and everything. Because again, I talk about this in my speech, is how important it is. For us as leaders to be visionary leaders, to let them, you know, dangle the carrot of success, show them their role in it, what they get out of it. Because when they feel that, you know, they, th- that's what pops them out of bed in the morning, right? That's, yeah, yeah. that's why they want to be there. So tell me, I mean, on this Friday meeting that you're, you're saying is coming up, how often is that done, that Friday meeting, where they're kind of told where we stand and where we're headed? Yeah, this, no, this is part of the week-long quarterly review meeting. Okay. And that happens every three months, clockwork. And we've been doing that about 20 years now. So we didn't start it out this this way, but it slowly evolved into a, a, a discipline. And it, it really, it's based on the same, uh, this, the, the, what I talked about, that we're not perfect. So I've worked for a family business um, that, ha- that my father has a partner. I work for the big trading company. So I know that the frustration for employee in the, big com- in the company is that there are lots of problems, right? Every company has issues. As challenges, and I just realized how frustrated I am, even in the family business. That why why are we all facing all these challenges? And I just come to the conclusion, and that's really where the deliberateness comes from. I want to tell everybody the facts of life: is that life is full of issues, companies is full of issues, and so perfection is not what we are looking for or what we're driving at. And then for employees to look for a perfect company is also a myth; it doesn't happen. In fact, I said the more successful we are, the more problems we will have. When we are smooth sailing, that's the day before we're going to close. <laughs> very smooth sailing. We don't have to do anything. The company doesn't need to do anything. noble motivation to do everything. Then everything is very smooth sailing. Everything is very calm. So the reason why I said that 
is particularly out of the love of my employees because if you get, I said, don't get frustrated every day. But the reality, if you don't have the right mindset, you will feel frustrated. So I tell them that we will have a lot of problems. The more successful we are, the more moves will actually quadruple. It's exponential. But that is okay. The key is not dwelling in the problems on the day-to-day problem. But look back three months before when we had our last quarterly meeting. What did we talk about? What was our company then? And look at this week when we talked about this. And then the Friday meeting is that then the leadership team is going to say, this is what we're going to do for the next quarter, right? So, so, so it puts things into context is that so we review what we, how we were three months ago. And so right now we are already better than three months ago. And we will be, be even better the next three months. Yeah. And this has been, you can imagine this if we duplicate this quarter after quarter for 20 years. So, so Daniel, so this, this is what I love about what you're saying. That. New it, employees, smart employees, Harvard graduates, when they first come in, they say, ah, Daniel, that sounds very good. It doesn't, re- I mean, it's, it, it, I don't believe it. But they, after a year, right, that means you have three quarters to go back. I'm telling you, Million Dollar Bay have a really, really good, strong track record in terms of showing the improvement that we have. We still have a lot of problems. I look at it as challenges. But this quarterly review meeting is very, very important to put things into perspective and to calm the nerves of all employees. Well, it goes back to that whole creative destruction when I talk about that, because you even brought up the term continual improvement. Right. And I talk about this when I speak because, you know, continual improvement implies that you're going to always get better. And sometimes in business, that doesn't always work. I mean, you're going to have to take risk, and it's not going to be comfortable. And like you said, there's going to be problems. But when you talk about creative destruction, you know, I, I just love those two words together, creative destruction. Right. Because first of all, you got you got to mix things up. But then you have to destroy it. You have to rip it apart. You have to look at your operations, your KPIs, your measurables, and say, hey, are we on the right path in all these different uh, areas? And And here's the reality. You either have to destroy it and try to get better, or you will be destroyed yeah. by your competitors because they're, you know, typically when a company gets to the top, what do we do with the gas pedal as a leader? We kind of take our foot off and kind of relax. Well, everybody else is behind you pressing down even harder because they want a piece of you. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I love that you understand that and, and that you say there's no perfect because there isn't, but there's also, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side for employees as well. I mean, and for us as, as employers, I mean, we're not always going to get a better employee. We can try and certainly we do, yeah. but also when people leave companies, they're going to find that all companies have similar issues. Listeners, we are also working on some other fun, exciting things coming from the Quiggle Group, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, though, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Garage to Goliath. Subscribing helps others find the show in iTunes. Please also leave an honest review. That's how I get better and make this better for you. And I'd be so grateful to you if you'd share this podcast with others on social media. Send a quick email to someone you think would enjoy it. Just let me get the word out so we can continue to build our leadership legacies together. 